MJT readers, uh, this is Josh Levitsky. I'm here in Chicago and I'm joined today by Roz Nannan, who's in Omaha, and Laura Danziger-Izkoff, who's in uh, Cincinnati. And we are doing a special edition of the AJT highlights today on COVID-19 in organ transplantation. So just to give a little background, we are going to be continuing our AJT Highlights podcast every month, Roz and I with a guest. But we thought with the flood of reports and cases and experiences in organ transplantation that we wanted to have a special uh, podcast for just coronavirus and COVID-19. And we felt that this was there was enough data at this point, middle of April, where we're sort of starting to see the peak in some places a downturn and some places an upturn in the, in the virus and a lot of reports flooding in about the experiences in organ transplantation. We had the thought to maybe go outside of American Journal of Transplantation if there were other reports, but actually we've been getting so much for an AJT, so many submissions about, you know, nationally and internationally about this pandemic that I think we have enough to discuss just from AJT itself. And so Laura graciously in, in all of this, um, with how busy she is on, at her own institution and, and lots of efforts with this is going to give us kind of an update as to where we are in terms of uh, the coronavirus and organ transplant and um, give us some of the early papers and issues that are going on uh, up to this point. And we're hoping to do this uh, every month until whenever <clears throat> we figure this thing out. So Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Thanks, Josh and Roz. I'm really you know, happy to be here to share the information that we're already starting to see. AJT has had a enormous number of papers, as you've suggested, that are talking about COVID-19 and all of the issues um, around that that relate to transplant. We're very grateful to be able to um, provide this information to the community. And, uh, you know, the AJT on their website has their you know, COVID-19 section where you can find all the articles actually sequentially in the order of when they were published so that you can see the evolution of the information that we have. So I wanted to start today with the first article that was published, actually. This is from February 24th, which is before many of us um, were in the thick of this. It's an article that came from Marion Michaels. Um, I'm going to express my conflict of interest as a co-author on the paper, but several other very prominent co-authors, including Emily Blumberg and Dipali Kumar and Ricardo Lahose and Cam Wolf, uh, to name a few. It was a personal viewpoint called Coronavirus Disease 2019, Implications of Emerging Infections for Transplantation. I think the importance of this article is that it really was kind of the bellwether uh, sounding of the alarm for our community, talking about and highlighting the knowledge gaps that we have related to this infection and how we can use some of the knowledge that we have from prior outbreaks, including those of SARS and MERS, as well as Zika, to think about how we can protect patients and healthcare teams in during this time of uncertainty. 
They highlighted knowledge gaps related to transmission of infection, how to do donor screening, and temporary measures that have been implemented with blood supply to decrease risk to patients, as well as the lack, lack of understanding of treatment um, for this, which we're still suffering from, although we are getting new information as we move through this uh, pandemic. I think it was just a nice introduction to talk about the alternative options to care and preparedness for chronic patients that all of us have come to have to deal with. And I think that uh, it's a nice read to get everyone in the mindset of where we started and where we're, we're going. And so I would, I think that that's a, a nice paper that kind of set the groundwork for when we started to see the first reports. And most of these are uh, single reports of single cases that have come from around the, around the globe. The first report that was published in AJT was from March 13th, sorry, March 17th. It was from Zoo et al. from Tanji in Wuhan, Tanji Hospital. The successful recovery of a COVID-19 pneumonia in a renal transplant recipient with long-term immunosuppression. This was the first case of a kidney transplant recipient. It was a 52-year-old who was 12 years post-transplant, who presented fairly classically with fever, cough, shortness of breath, and malaise. The parameters on laboratory and CT findings were typical to what we've come to expect. Low lymphocyte counts, increased CRP, typical CT scan findings of brown glass uh, multifocal pneumonia. And on day eight of the illness, the patient had a positive PCR for SARS-CoV-2. I think it's interesting in this in this particular case, to think about the multiple therapies that this patient received sequentially, but as also almost simultaneously. And that was the hallmark of our early appreciation of this disease, especially in our transplant patients, is that um, the uncertainty around what was going to work led to multiple therapies being used simultaneously, including antibiotics, decreased immunosuppression with continued steroids, um, an antiviral called umfenivir, which is available in Russia and Asia, but not in the United States, inhaled alpha interferon, as well as intravenous immunoglobulin. When there's a, not a lot that's known about a natural history of the disease, there's a difficulty in understanding which, if any, of these played a part in assisting with recovery. But this patient did recover, and the discussion in that article touches on some of the uncertainty around what the appropriate course, course of treatment should be in an individual patient. The second case um, came from Julian et al. From, in Barcelona on March 20th, and this is a case report of COVID-19 also in a kidney transplant recipient. The focus was this was, does immunosuppression alter the clinical presentation? This was one of the first articles that uh, discussed unusual presentations in transplant recipients. Um, and illustrated the fact that we're just learning as we go. We're also learning from healthy patients who started to present with different disease courses that were um, less expected. The, this case that they presented from Barcelona was a 50-year-old kidney recipient who presented with fever and diarrhea and actually was seen in the emergency department with, vir with presumed viral gastroenteritis. Mm -hmm. The inflammatory markers in this case were not elevated, but, and they were sent home after, you know, being evaluating in the emergency department. However, five days later, this patient returned with severe cough and was diagnosed with uh, COVID-19. 
Treatment for this patient included also decreasing immunosuppression. Both the calcineurin inhibitor and mTOR inhibitor were discontinued. The patient received hydroxychloroquine as well as uh, lopinavir ritonavir. This patient developed progressive respiratory failure, was uh, treated with interferon beta, and there was an attempt to change the patient to remdesivir, although the final outcome of this patient is still, is, has not been reported yet, which, you know, is difficult to report a case in the middle of it, but I think it illustrated the fact that we as practitioners need to be aware that not all of our patients are going to present um, in a cookie cutter manner. Similar to the fact that now an, um, anosmia is being recognized as one of the hallmark presentations of patients, diarrhea and viral gastroenteritis is potentially part of the disease um, presentation, um, hadn't yet been recognized. And the last cases that I last two cases that I want to represent this morning are from March 31st, and these came from Italy from Gandolfini and all. Um, and this is a letter to the editor on COVID-19 and kidney recipients. Here, and they presented two kidney recipients who were variable times from transplant. One was a 75-year-old man who was several years from transplant, and the other was a 50-year-old, 52-year-old woman who was only eight months post-transplant. They received either lopinavir ritonavir or darunavir cobostat, hydroxychloroquine, decreased immunosuppression and had various, very different outcomes. The 75-year-old man expired prior to being, able, to being intubated. The other patient, while receiving uh, non-invasive ventilation, develops significant anti-inflammatory. Uh, while many places and people have used um, tocilizumab and other IL-6 inhibitors, the, this was not available to the team, and they employed colchicine as an anti-inflammatory. The patient recovered. So, I think that this illustrates that there's a wide variety of presentation as well as clinical disease course, and we don't have all of the information that we need in order to predict who's going to have what outcome. A couple of additional comments before we, before we get to questions. I think that in the, in the very near future, you're going to see many more case reports of kidney, heart, liver, lung accumulating in the literature, including from AJT. There are going to be larger case series and cohorts that are going to be coming very soon. And we're going to have to continue to learn about presentation, natural history of the disease, including fatalities, recovery, and the long-term and the, the long -term sequela that may occur in our patients. We're going to have to learn much more about therapies to treat both the, environment, the virus, but also the inflammatory sequelae and therapy complications specific to our patients. Um, as well as the impact of different immunosuppressive strategies on the natural history of disease in transplant patients. Thank you, Laura. That's those those cases. It almost feels like it's eons ago that those were published, and and you know just so many cases coming in. I'm, I'm wondering with the presentation of these cases, how similar is this to other reports coming in uh, on other cases? Is this a pretty good, still a pretty good representation now that we're getting lots of cases coming in or are you seeing anything I, I else? Think, yeah, I think that's, that's an excellent question. I think that um, we're seeing even more as cases come in and cohorts are developed, the breadth 
of presentation, but also the breadth of the natural history of disease. So from patients who, uh, transplant recipients who are able to be managed in the home situate, in the home tr scenario where they're not actually having to be admitted to the hospital to patients who are having the most severe of outcomes and mortality and everything in between. I also think we're seeing a refinement as information is being communicated about early treatment strategies, a refinement of, you know, what are the treatment protocols that people are employing? Uh, certainly with the early reports on lopinavir, ritonavir, uh, we have seen a significant drop off in the number of patients that are being reported who are being treated with that, specifically related to, you know, lack of efficacy, but also significant amounts of reports about drug-drug interactions, um, specifically related to calcineurin inhibitors. We're seeing also, you know, variable uh, use of hydroxychloroquine initially with a lot of azithromycin, but concerns around efficacy of that, as well as the concerns around side effects and balancing the risk-benefit profile related to cardiac dysfunction and prolonged QT. We've certainly seen a drop off in the number of combination therapy cases that were that were that are being reported. And in the near future, we're going to see a lot of conversation about uh, anti-inflammatory therapy, um, and that's definitely coming down the pike. I was wondering if uh, if you could give us your opinion. You know, I think. When we first read that review, you know, Mary and Michael's paper, it does seem like eons ago. The sense was immunosuppression was going to be uniformly fatal, that any immunosuppressed individual would get this and then die, but it's obviously not the case. Do you have a sense of why that is? Is it because of immunomodulation that we're cutting our therapies back? Are the, do we just not know enough about how the virus replicates and functions? I think that we're learning how the virus replicates and functions. We're learning about the various receptors it uses to enter the host. We're learning also, I think more importantly, about the host reaction to the virus. Mm -hmm. And it seems that many of the significant side effects, side effects of having the infection or the natural course of the infection relate to the pro-inflammatory state that's developed after the patients had their, you know, primary infection. And I think that is one of the things that the interplay of immunosuppression on modulating the response, the host response to virus are so, is something that we need to learn a lot more about. Yeah. And I was, you know, I think we were all thinking very much, you know, the, that cytokine storm was going to be uniform, but clearly it isn't. And clearly there are people sitting at home and just feeling terribly. And, Again, it just sort of boggles the mind. Is it because they're more susceptible or the cytokine storm is because they had a larger viral load and, and infection? It's, and why is everybody, you know, 90, 50% of individuals in nursing homes, is it just frailty per se? Because in the news, they have these 80-year-old people like that are alive as well. So right. I really find this very curious. I think it is really curious. I mean, clearly most of the data has shown that people who are at the extremes of age are at higher risk for mortality, but it also may be related to how the virus epidemiologically presented in different populations. Certainly the groups from Italy have suggested that with the initial wave, there were a significant number of patients who were in an older, at the extremes of age in the older age range. But as the the situation progressed. They were seeing more and more patients and people who are younger. 
And the interplay of the host response with the virus is certainly going to be something that we're going to have to learn a tremendous amount about, including uh, if there's genetic predisposition to certain certain responses and um, if that is interplaying with the risk for mortality and morbidity. And I guess my last question, I don't want to be dominating it, Josh, is are there any presenting features that are predictive of poor outcome? Is it the higher CRP? I mean, O2 sad, I know everybody talks about, but are there other inflammatory or immune associated Markers. I think I think that I think that that's that's what people are trying to figure out with these really large cohorts. I mean, they're trying to figure out, you know, are the acute phase re- is there a specific acute phase reactant reactant or set of acute phase reactants a combination of CRP and procalcitonin and uh, ferritin and 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 whatnot that could help us identify so that we can learn in advance who's more likely to develop a complication. I think the emerging complications, the other things that we're going to see are the emerging complications around um, coagulopathies is something that's very interesting. And certainly the article that looked at, uh, you know, the kidney biopsy, the kidney um, autopsy sample specimens is something that needs to be explored further so that we can understand a little bit more about the interplay, not only with the pro-inflammatory state, but how that impacts risk for other complications like embolic phenomena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, um, when I was listening to your uh, case presentations and they were all in kidney transplant recipients and um, obviously they're, you know, they're, the numbers of kidney transplant recipients far goes above any of the other organ transplants. And, but it sort of struck me and what we've seen at, at Northwestern is about four or five times uh, the number of COVID cases are in kidney versus the other organs. I'm wondering if there's any inkling of a thought of whether, you know, kidney transplant recipients are more specifically, it, it just, as it seems out of proportion to the numbers to me. And I'm wondering if it has to do with the degree of immunosuppression being higher than like my own, you know, patient population liver transplant. And I'm wondering if I, I don't I don't know the answer to that. I, I will say, you know, given the information and the data that Marcus Pereira and the group from Columbia Presbyterian presented at the AST town hall of their 90 patients, certainly they had a pretty broad distribution of all types of organs. And it may, you know, it may just be that we don't have a wide enough scope to see what the impact is going to be yet. And, and large groups like that, as well as the group um, that's collecting, you know, data from around the world um, at University of Washington, uh, certainly will have an impact on our understanding of this. Yeah, I do. I, it, obviously, there's more comfort potentially with, with lowering immunosuppression and say a liver transplant recipient versus maybe a kidney or a lung. Of course, we don't know if that's the right thing to do or not, or or whether that relates to outcomes um, being better in one population or another, you need obviously those large databases to answer these these questions. And we look forward to seeing them published soon. Yeah. Moving on, Laura, I, I think you had a few other comments yeah, a, you'd like to share with us. Yes. Yeah, so there's a couple of other articles that I think are worthwhile because they talk about the the viewpoint and the impact on transplantation. And these are things that our community needs to be discussing and sharing and talking about. The first was um, 
report from Dipali Kumar called, uh, it was published on, on March 23rd. It was COVID-19, a global transplant perspective on su successfully navigating a pandemic. It include authors from Japan, South Korea, Canada, Italy, Spain, Switzerland, and the US. And it explored different approaches to donation and treatment based on local prevalence, perceived risk, resource availability, including testing, medical services, and personnel. And it proposed a graded approach to transplant capacity with examples of possible methods to assign priority to balance risk and benefit, both for the individual, but also for the program and for a center that's under the constraints of um, other patients. Uh, I think I think that this is a nice, it's a nice read. It um, gives people perspective about how to think about it and has some very, you know, tangible examples. But I, more importantly, it was, it kind of served as a base for the report that came out on April 3rd from Angelico and all from Rome in Italy, entitled The COVID-19 Outbreak in Italy, Initial Implications for Organ Transplant Programs. This was a very unique manuscript that um, really offers insight into what the impact of COVID can be on transplant procedures during the ongoing pandemic. It was um, preliminary data on the impact of transplant focused on transplantation rates in Italy during the pandemic, especially as the pandemic in that region overwhelmed resources specifically in the north and that was also impeded travel restrictions for donor teams as well as potential recipients. And they uh, compared transplant volumes in all of Italy from the 24th of February until the 22nd of March in 2020, so the current year, and they compared that to an average over the prior five years from 2015 to 2019. They saw a decrease in the average of donors from 97 in the pre-COVID era to 73 donors during that period of 2020. And more, more impressively, the total number of transplants decreased from an average of 249 to 214. They also explored how this was driven by region because they were able to look at that based on their regional transplant. And usually in their population, 70% of the donors do come from northern regions. The donors in that region specifically decreased by 30%. And this was compared to a 9% decrease in the South. They were able to maintain transplantation, but had to manage competing needs provided by the pressure in an already stressed system. And it provides information for us on what we might expect as we see the ripple of COVID and the pandemic through our other communities around the world related to transplantation. It also allows for people to think about what they can do to plan for that to help mitigate some of that risk. And in order to conceptualize how to, how to do that, there was a very illustrative paper from Wall et al. Um, entitled on April 13th, entitled The Coronavirus 2019, Utilizing an Ethical Framework for Rationing Absolutely Scarce Healthcare Resources in Transplant Allocation Decisions. This was based on some of the data, some of the um, pandemic-related ethical discussions that were emanated by Dr. Emanuel in the New England Journal earlier in the year, specifically related to the pandemic, and applying them to transplantation. They suggested that moving beyond justice, uh, the equal opportunity to transplantation for all, and utility ensuring benefits from transplantation would have to be additionally considered 
in the context of several other ethical principles, including maximizing benefits, treating people equally, promoting and rewarding instrumental value, meaning that uh, there may be other methodologies or measures that need to be considered when you're thinking about the value of different um, people coming to transplant uh, and and whether or not those that those values have to be considered differently, including the likelihood of a, of a good outcome or the duration of outcome in a population, as well as um, thinking about what resources will be required for each of those for each of those potential outcomes and balancing them. And then also prioritizing for the worst off. And this is balancing the worst off in transplantation with the worst off in general patients who have COVID and are utilizing medical care at a higher rate. So I think that those group of articles really just highlighted that the landscape of transplantation is being altered. And the considerations for the safety of transplantation, issues around donor recipient screening, waitlist management, resource availability and utilization, protection of healthcare teams, and the ethics that guide all of those, putting all those together are really complex issues that are going to require significant conversation, discussion, thoughtful consideration as we move forward as a, as a group that is interested in maintaining transplantation, protecting, protecting people, um, and saving lives. That's terrific. I, I, um, when you were talking about the Italian experience, I mean, it just obviously made me think about what's going on in the United States. And of course, everything is kind of down, I think, relatively similarly in the U.S. But I, I was wondering, do we have an inkling of sort of region uh, specific um, rates of donation and transplantation? Like, are they way down in, in the New York City area compared to a place with, with less COVID-19? Or do we know that yet? You know, um, David Claussen from from the OPTN, um, you know, uh, presented some preliminary data at uh, the AST Town Hall last week that showed globally transplantation is down. Significantly, living donor transplants are down, which has been one of the first processes that can be delayed in anticipation of, you know, preserving scarce resources related to PPE, as well as, you know, hospital beds and ventilators and, and uh, intensive care unit beds. But he didn't really go into the regional changes, and I'm sure that this conversation yeah. will certainly spark at least a couple of manuscripts out there that are percolating in people's minds about how to mine the data in the U.S. or in Canada or in other, other regions to really explore the impact regionally. You know, we do have other questions that need to come to mind, geographic distribution, broad sharing. We certainly have different prevalence and penetrance of infection in different regions and areas of our of our country. Um, questions around critically ill patients on the wait list and, and if they should be moved to other regions haven't really been discussed. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, uh, but that will have to play into the equation as this continues and we see sporadic probably uh, reemergence in different areas with secondary and tertiary blips of you know, significant penetrance of infection in different communities. Yeah, I still think it's uh, it, just the Italian experience. It's almost pretty amazing to me that they, 
that the numbers didn't go from, I think you said like 240 to 219, that it didn't go from like 240 to 50 or something. Yeah. I mean, they still, they still maintain transplantation and certainly, you know, have worked really hard to do that. They should absolutely be commended. Um, and we have a lot to learn from them. And that's why we were excited to have that paper be shared because we thought it was illustrative of, you know, opportunity for us to continue to do the work that we need to do to, you know, continue to serve our So a couple of comments, Josh and Laura, about uh, regional information. UNOS now, and I applaud them, has actually got an online uh, website, unos.org slash COVID-19, and you can actually see cumulative transplants. I mean, it's the most transparent numbers I've ever seen um, before. And then it shows you the regional variation. And again, as you guys point out correctly, in kidney at least, living donor is way, way, way down. But still, there's a trickle. But interestingly, it's it's the regional variation. So you'd think the Northeast is completely socked in, but these regions are quite big. So Vermont and New Hampshire are in that region, and maybe they're accounting for some of the volume, although there are New York programs that I think are trying to, to move on. And the Pacific Northwest has been deeply affected, I think, probably starting there first and then going to the other coast. I think the regions that seem to have been the least affected but are down significantly are the Southeast and the Midwest, both the North Midwest and the Mid. It, you have to look at the regions. They don't match up to DSA, donor service areas. So how that's going to change, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to start going down as everybody goes back up. We'll, we'll have to see. And I think it's complicated because who's your donor pool and are they sleeping in the bed next door to the COVID patients? And I think um, there was a great webinar by UNOS and um, uh, the New York transplant group, uh, the New York transplant um, organization that um, demonstrated the, the, the change in, in, OP, in, in OPO operations going from virtual and not being on site and not being able to contact donor families in person. It's incredible to me to see those efforts. And, And along those lines, you know, I appreciate you sort of highlighting, you know, what are the next steps? I mean, people already say to me, well, what are the next steps? And I'm like, wait, I haven't even gotten through the first steps. But in terms of um, the one thing I hope this does, and it keeps us all working as a team across the globe, that it's not one center doing more volume than the other center. It's more of a communication of, of best practices and collegiality, which I think I've seen for the first time in a very long time to see everybody sort of working on the same page, whether you're a cardiac transplant person or a kidney person. And I know in ID you see everybody, but we tend to be more siloed. (laughs) And um, and I, and I do think, you know, the sharing, the open sharing of information has been terrific. And, you know, the willingness of of the deputies and the associate editors to see a high volume of papers coming in is really appreciated. Wonderful. Well, I think we're going to close here. Really appreciate it, Laura. Um, this is exactly what we needed. You know, I, I think um, you could pr- we could probably do this every week, but um, that might be tough. <laughs> but just, there's, there's so much to talk about, but uh, we really appreciate it. And we're going to continue to do this um, monthly, uh, Roz and I, and we'll have more in a month. But we are, we do want continued normalcy, and we're going to continue our regular AJT highlights podcast. Um, the next one will be coming out in early May. And um, again, I thank the both of you for, for being on and 
really appreciate it. Everybody, please stay safe. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 